Let's hit it. Welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about. And welcome back to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks, and I hope you enjoyed our opening music. It's called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band, featuring Maya Dor. And if you're interested in downloading that, you can do so on any of your favorite music platforms. For those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer Speaks Radio is about sound information, not just sound bites. We want to have real conversations with real people. And so our goal is to raise all voices all around the world, from those living with dementia to those caring for them, to those providing services, advocates, researchers, and so much more. You can always join the conversation, or maybe you can be our next guest. Just reach out to me at lori at alzheimerspeaks.com. Now, before we go any further, I always have to thank our listeners. You see, it's your likes, your clicks, your shares that has made Alzheimer Speaks what it is today. Together, we have built a community that offers comfort and confidence and information. And for that, I truly, truly thank you. And I hope you will continue to like, click, and share our information and get it out to those in your social media spheres as well. Before I introduce you to our guest today, who is going to be talking about an exciting trial that we need to get out to the world, I want to give a shout out to the Memory Cafe directory. I just believe so highly in these groups. I wish they were around when my mom had dementia. They are for people with dementia and their care partners to build a new peer um, community and really share information, have authentic conversations, and um, feel aligned and purposeful again. So go to the memorycafedirectory.com. They are typically in person, but due to COVID, they are now doing many uh, virtual cafes, one of which I have uh, listed there as well. And if you have a cafe, uh, make sure, you know, if you're not listed there, Dave would be more than glad to to add you. It's free to, to be in there. Or if you're looking for more information, you can find resources there or, or reach out to myself. I do a lot of mentoring in terms of getting people uh, set up with memory cafes. I also want to mention on July 16th, I will be doing a virtual presentation for Artists Senior Living of Woodbury, Minnesota. And you can find more information out about that by going to alzheimerspeaks.com. You can also check out our dementia chats where I facilitate conversations with people who I feel are the true experts, those living with the disease, or check out also our dementia quick tips. Both of those can be found on our YouTube channel. So 
with no further ado, let me introduce you to our fantastic guest today. Michael Detke is a medical doctor with his PhD, and he is the chief medical officer at Cortexium, which is a biotech company developing therapies targeting bacteria P. gingivalis. And it's commonly associated with gum disease that can actually affect the brain and cause Alzheimer's disease. This is going to be a real fascinating conversation I think we're going to have today. Dr. Detke is a board-certified psychiatrist and has been involved in clinical drug research and development for more than 20 years. And he was also trained in psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School. So welcome to the show. I'm so thrilled to have you. Well, thank you very much for having, uh, having me and uh, representing Cortex on, on your show. Wonderful. Now, one of the first questions I always ask every guest is, have you personally been touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends? Yes, I have. As, as you know, it's um, unfortunately very common. Alzheimer's affects about 5.8 million Americans, and that's just the most common form of dementia. My, my mother, unfortunately, has, um, uh, is 91, um, but has some mixed dementia. Um, and and my father's mother um, lived to a very ripe old age of 99 and and did uh, but but developed dementia um, in her last two or three years. So um, like most Americans, I have a I have uh, relatives who had Alzheimer's and dementia. Okay, great. Well, thank you for sharing that. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the bacteria associated with gum disease and how that can affect the brain and actually cause Alzheimer's disease? Okay, yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. So the, um, there are a lot of bacteria in your mouth, as most people know, um, but there is um, one that dentists and, and gum experts, periodontal, periodontitis, um, have been uh, focusing on for decades now, and it's called Porphyromonas gingivalis, or uh, PG, we'll, we'll call it to keep it easy. Um, and it's, um, uh, it, it's, it's called a keystone bacterium in the cause of gum disease, uh, gingivitis when it's mild gum disease, and when it gets more severe, it's called periodontal disease. Um, and um, this bacterium uh, seems to activate and, and, uh, and fight the immune system and, and uh, activate other bacteria in a way that it is this keystone pathogen that causes it. Um, it's a very unique and interesting bacterium uh, in as much as it, it gets inside of cells, which most bacteria don't do. Um, and it's also unique because it is what's, um, what's the, the uh, um, infectious disease doctors call it asaccharolytic, which means it doesn't live on sugars. Um, it lives off proteins. So most bacteria live on sugars, and um, most bacteria are benign. They're harmless. You have lots of bacteria in your gut and on your skin, and, um, and those are all harmless, and, and most of them live off sugars. Um, so the way this bacteria lives off proteins is it releases molecules that chop up proteins that can, it can then eat as its food, basically, and as its energy supply. Um, the problem is that these, these molecules called gingipanes, or uh, they're kind of protease, um, they chop up molecules inside your cells that damage the cells. It's a little bit like having um, termites. 
inside of your cells, inside of your gum tissue or, or inside of your brain. And then, it, and then it damages the tissue and the cells die and the tissue dies off. So um, I think one of your questions had to do with how, how this can get to the brain. And there's a couple of different ways. Um, uh, because it goes inside of other cells, it can go into some of your blood cells. And then it can go through the bloodstream and go throughout um, other parts of the body. And, and it, we've shown that it crosses the blood-brain barrier and goes into the brain. We have also seen in animals that it's because it's in the, um, the oral space, which is connected to your nose and your um, nasal cavities, um, that um, that can go directly through the, the, the bone that separates your, your nasopharynx from your brain is called the cribriform plate, which has little holes in it through which the olfactory nerves go. And it goes directly into the uh, part of the brain that is responsible for smell. Uh, we know that it, we know that it goes there. We've shown this in mice. And we think that that might explain the very common phenomenon in Alzheimer's disease that a lot of patients lose their sense of smell. And it may be because this bacteria goes directly into the part of the brain that's involved in smell and infects that um, in some cases first, in some cases many years before other cognitive symptoms. Okay, interesting. There's so many different theories out there, you know, that we hear about. Um, with the research you've done, can you talk in terms of numbers and has it been just animal oriented right now or have you gotten into human phases of, of the trial to look at this bacteria and the effects on Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, well, um, a little bit of all of the above. We're, um, we're now in, um, the short answer to your question is we're now in a, a large phase two, three clinical trial that we hope will be a, a definitive test of efficacy and a lot of the safety of a, a new drug. Um, and um, that's underway. It's been underway for years. There's a website called um, GAIN Trial, G-A-I-N-T-R-I-A-L.com that um, anyone can go to and, 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 and learn more about it. Um, prior to uh, working your, our way backwards, prior to phase two, three, we did phase one studies, mostly in healthy volunteers. Um, and, and mostly checking for safety and, and how the drug goes into your bloodstream and, and circulates in your body. And um, those were all completed safely. Um, we did get some efficacy data from one cohort of Alzheimer's patients in one of those studies, which was very encouraging efficacy. And then we also have some very encouraging efficacy data from um, um, a mouse model um, and also a dog dot model of periodontal disease, the, the drug um, appears to be efficacious in both of those. So in the mouse model, if you simply infect a mouse in its mouth with Porphyromonas gingivalis, this bacterium, PG, um, that bacteria gets into the brain of the mouse um, and causes really all the symptom, all the, all the pathological uh, evidence of Alzheimer's. It causes um, A-beta-LA plaques, tau-like tangles. Um, it causes inflammatory response with um, inflammatory markers such as uh, TNF-alpha. Um, and, and about half of the cells in the hippocampus, which is one of the brain's key memory centers, um, die off. So, so we can show that it's, it seems to be causing all the typical signs of, of Alzheimer's in mouse brains, um, including loss of, of uh, the death of uh, memory cells. And, and then when we treat, then we take those same mice and treat with our drug, it seems to reverse all of those uh, phenomena. And, wow. uh, 
that's uh, that's pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. It is. We're we're we're, um, we're very encouraged. The um, the the underlying hypothesis is that this infection really lies lies upstream of a lot of the other things that you see in Alzheimer's. And so going to sort of the, the root cause or the, the potential source of the problem, um, we're, we're optimistic that we might be able to really, um, if not uh, slow, if not completely stop progression of the disease. Uh, a, as you know, there are, no, um, there, there are a few FDA-approved treatments for Alzheimer's disease. They treat the symptoms of Alzheimer's, but they don't slow down, down the progression of the disease or stop it. So that's what um, a lot of people in the field have been uh, trying to work toward in the last few years. Wow. So um, with the trial, are you looking for people that have, you know, gingivitis and, and have gum disease right now in order to be, um, to see if that can be reversed? Or are you taking all, you know, a wide span of people? So, well, first of all, it really is a, a clinical trial to test the effectiveness and safety of the drug to treat Alzheimer's disease. So that's the primary goal of the study. Um, we, however, um, we, um, we know that Alzheimer's disease and gum disease are correlated. There have been about 10 or 12 published papers in the scientific literature on this. And the, those findings were one of the findings that led our, our scientific co-founders at Cortexime to hypothesized that this could be the cause, this bacteria could be the cause of Alzheimer's and, and got on this path. So what's happening with the trial in those regards is um, we have about 60 clinical trial sites spread all across the United States that you can see on gaintrial.com and about 30 more in uh, several countries in Europe, United Kingdom, Netherlands, Poland, France, and Spain. And about half of those clinical trial sites have affiliated dental sites. So um, if you uh, become a volunteer in the study and, and um, are a subject in the study, you will get all the assessments done for safety and for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and if you're at one of the sites that has a dental site, you'll also get some, some basic dental exams done, and we will follow whether or not um, the, the drug also improves periodontal disease. What we have seen so far in our baseline data that are still blinded data, it's a double-blind study, um, is that over 90% of the patients that show up for this Alzheimer's disease study um, have uh, moderate to severe periodontal disease. Um, so that is further evidence supporting the, the correlation of these two illnesses, uh, but also supporting the hypothesis that this bacteria might be a cause. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about the the drug that you've developed and how you see that that working? You know, maybe I, I would imagine with with trials, you guys usually have some different um, theories in terms of uh, you know what happens during the trials and where you go next with things. Right. Um, I'll show you this and the audience this slide if that's okay. That, that describes both the, the bacterium and how it works, but also uh, the drug. These are two pictures on the left and right, um, and the bottom half of the picture uh, depicts inside of cells, like neurons in your brain. Um, and these pink pill-shaped things are the bacteria P. gingivalis. Um, and as I said, the bacteria is not causing most of the damage, but it releases these these um, proteases called gingipanes, 
which are depicted as little little Pac-Man like uh, objects because they go around chopping up uh, and damaging other things in the cell, like uh, like Tau and ApoE. We know they they damage those. Um, so then the picture on the right depicts treatment with our drug, and um, the drug does not attack the bacterium itself, P. gingivalis, but it attacks these gingipanes, these little orange uh, Pac-Man-like things. And what it does is um, they're going around and causing damage, and our drug Core 388 binds to the active site of these molecules, and it binds to them covalently or irreversibly, so it stops them from causing all the damage in the cell. Now, it also stops them from chopping up proteins, which are the food for P. gingivalis. So you can see the left side before treatment, there's lots of P. gingivalis. There's four or five of these pink uh, pills. And on the right, there's only, you know, there's fewer of them. And you can see that the ginger pains are not active anymore, the orange Pac-Man, because they've all been, uh, had uh, core 388, which is depicted by these little kind of diamond-like gems, um, is bound to all of them. Um, so that's how the drug works, and, um, and, and that's how we think it will be stopping damage, allowing, um, protecting neurons that um, could be damaged in the future, and also possibly saving some neurons that are, that are infected and damaged, but not dead yet. Um, the other kind of exciting news about our drug is we, we, we got um, a generic name for this drug just a couple of weeks ago. We announced this in a press release. It is called Atuza Ginstat, A-T-U-Z-A, Atuza, Gin as in gingipane, G-I-N, and stat as in stopping the gingipane, Ginstat. Gin um, so Atuza Genstat. I don't have that on a slide yet, but um, that's the new name. Oh, cool. Well, that's neat. Um, and it says what it's doing. I've, I've always wondered with drug names where, where they all come from and things. So um, that's always interesting in and of itself. Now, um, with your company, you know, you're, you're conducting all of these trials. And you basically, you've got 90 of them throughout the world. It sounds like 60 in the U.S. and, and 30 in other countries. Who, who can participate? Everybody has criteria. And, you know, what I hear from people is, you know, I'm too young or I'm too old or I have other things. So can you tell us what some of the criteria are for, for the trial? Sure. And these are laid out on the, the gametrial.com site too. Um, some of the key criteria that, you know, people can easily evaluate at home are um, we're looking for people between the ages of 55 and 80. Um, they, with Alzheimer's disease, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if you have gum disease, gingivitis, or periodontal disease, um, and you'd ha you have to be able to travel to the site, and you have to have a caregiver that will commit to being involved in the study with the patient. You know, typically that's a spouse, but it has to be someone who, who knows the patient, who can accompany them to visits, and who can make sure that the, they'll, they'll ensure that the patient takes the medicine every day. The medicine is an oral pill that's taken twice a day, um, so it's pretty simple to take the medicine. No, no IVs or anything like that is needed. Uh, but those are some of the key criteria, and of course, there are more that will have to be evaluated by the by the doctors at the clinical trial sites, including some blood tests and a and an MRI scan and some things like that. Okay, um, can they have other conditions? 
because I know for some that kind of throws them out of the loop for some other trials. Um, they have to meet the criteria for what is called probable Alzheimer's dementia. The only the, the definitive diagnosis uh, for Alzheimer's is still um, analyzing the brain postmortem. Um, but you, so you have to have um, uh, clinical signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's and sign on the brain scan that you're not having another cause of dementia, such as um, uh, uh, having uh, multiple infarcts or, or um, uh, vascular dementia, which is the next most common form, and so on and so forth. So, um, but 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 we are. Um, it doesn't have to be someone who's 100% healthy and takes no medicines. Um, people with other stable medical conditions, unstable, uh, most stable medication doses, and people can be taking um, Alzheimer's uh, medications like like. Um, Denepazil and memantine. Um, so those those symptomatic medications that we talked about before, um, it's okay if they take those. There's, uh, we want them to stay at a steady dose throughout the study if they can. Um, but that's all okay. Oh, great! Because I know sometimes people have to choose, and that's a that's a tough one for them. It's like, well, this is a maybe, and I feel like this is working. And if I leave it and go back on, what will happen? And you know, all of those types of things. And I like that it's um, down to the age of 55 because again, um, and I'd love to see it even lower um, because there are, are people even younger, but um, that's a nice change compared to a lot of the trials where people feel like, you know, they can't participate and they really, they really want to um, be part of that. I have a question because you, it, it, this is kind of ironic. I just did a, what I call a dementia chats today where I facilitate a conversation with people with dementia. And our conversation was about medical appointments and COVID <laughs> and, and how everything has changed um, during that process. Um, has that affected how you're able to conduct your trials? We have had to be nimble. And, um, and and a little bit innovative, and, and I'm I'm pleased to say that our our clinical operations team and our our all of our many um, colleagues that are helping with the trial have been have been um, uh, and all the clinical trial sites um, that are working on the on the trial and the patients and caregivers have all been um, as cooperative as they can be. So we've um, we've allowed them to do they you know they come in for a number of visits over the course of the treatment, which is about a year. And some of those visits we are allowing to be phone call visits, or some of the some of the visits, some of the assessments for both efficacy and safety can be done over the phone or over video conferencing. So there are some cognitive scales that can be assessed over the phone with the caregiver or the patient or both. Um, and then there are some safety checks, like um, are you having any side effects or what we call adverse events? Um, are you taking any new medications? So some of the safety checks can, become over, can be done over the phone. Of course, they do have to come to the clinical trial site for certain safety checks with a certain frequency, including blood tests and things like that. Um, uh, but, but generally, we, with, with flexibility in terms of doing some things by phone, um, shipping the study drug, as I said, the patients in our trial, it's an oral pill for the medication. So they don't have to come into the site for an IV infusion. That's made it a little bit easier. Um, and so if need be, the, uh, the patient or the caregiver can come and pick up the medicine. We can have it taken there or shipped there. Um, so we've, we've, we've been able to navigate the COVID um, pandemic uh, pretty well. And, and the trial is, um, you know, uh, 
running, and as of now, we're we're still planning for an on-time interim analysis, which is going to be uh, toward the end of this year, uh, in the fourth quarter of this year, and then our final analysis we still uh, believe will be on time in the fourth quarter of next year. Okay, a um, couple of comments. One is people with dementia, for the most part, are really going to appreciate that you want that care partner to be part of this. Um, that was one of their biggest complaints when I, when we were talking this morning was they're telling me they can't come in and they have information um, to add value to the conversation when they're being asked questions and also in, in terms of remembering, you know, what what is said. Um, one of the comments that they made that they felt was helpful and, um, you know, might be helpful in the trial as well um, to consider is to allow people to even record the conversations so that they, you know, they can go back and refer to that, but it just um, allows them much more comfort in terms of the visit and, and what is happening with all of that. Now, are there, is there a cost to them at all? You had mentioned, you know, some blood work and some MRIs, and that's a typical question a lot of people ask is, you know, is this going to cost me anything or is there any compensation to be part of the trial? There's, um, so uh, typically in clinical trials, the, the sponsor company, Cortexime, covers all those costs. And, and we do cover all the costs for, for all aspects of the clinical trial. And um, we defray costs if, if the, the caregiver or patient incur costs like transportation. Um, so we can pay for Lyft and Uber um, or other transportation or, or defray their, their costs for their transportation if the they're using a private car. Um, it, it's um, it, it generally is not allowed in this phase of clinical trial to provide much more compensation than that. Um, ethical authorities don't want you know um, don't want to um, trials to be done in such a way that it coerces patients to be involved uh, financially coerces uh, when when they when they otherwise wouldn't be. So you you have to you have to um, uh, uh, walk a narrow path between compensating adequately but not, um, not overly um, uh, incentivizing patients to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. Which is totally understandable, and I, I think people can appreciate that. Um, the other question that I hear a lot from uh, the, the people in the dementia world uh, that participate in trials is they want to hear what the outcomes are of the trial. Are they updated as you're analyzing data or at the end? How does that work or do they hear what everyone else hears? One of the frustrations of uh, well-done, double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trials is that we know very little until the very end, uh, myself included. I'm the chief medical officer at the company. Um, so we break the blind at the end and then we, we release that to the rest of the world. Um, what, uh, as you said, I've, I've been doing clinical research for about 20 years now, um, and I used to work at a clinical trial site with, with patients direct, directly interacting with them, and I still um, do a, a spend a small part of my time in clinical practice of psychiatry. Um, so I totally understand that. One of the things, that, so, so they'll find out and the world will find out, you know, very soon after we... Um, unblind the data and, and look at the results. And one of the other things patients often want to know is, is um, what were they on at the end of the trial? Um, our, um, and, and we try to, after we 
unblind the trial at the end. We try to, as quickly as possible, provide the um, unblinding information on each individual patient to the clinical trial sites who are then in contact directly with the patients. Um, so, so the short answer is that um, they'll find out the results of the overall trial and, and whether they were on the, uh, the drug themselves and what dose, uh, but not until the very end. We have, we have rolled out something in uh, most of our U.S. sites where the patients who complete the double-blind phase, which is about a year, and they have, during that phase, they have a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one chance of getting placebo or 40 milligrams twice a day of the stat or 80 milligrams twice a day of the stat. After that, for a year, they can go into an open-label extension where they get um, everyone, it's open label, which means uh, everyone knows what they're getting and it's uh, 80 milligrams twice a day, um, the higher of the two doses for, the, for, the, for another uh, approximately a year. And is that, uh, would that be free to them for participating? This is all free to them. As okay. long as they, uh, and then while there's that extension of everybody getting, let's say the, the 80, 80 milligrams, is that analyzed then again at the end of that year in terms of progress? It is, and that's, that's a different phase and it's open label, so um, it's analyzed differently. And the other tricky thing that you said is at the end of a year, it's, it's not really a year because we have um, uh, everybody, if we just focus on the first, the, the, the randomized trial, it takes about a year of treatment but we're enrolling 570 patients and we're doing that over the course of about um, 18 months um, because we can't get 570 patients all at once. So it takes um, from the time the, the first patient starts to the last patient completes is more like about two and a half years of that study. And then, and then it would be another year after that for the open label extension. Okay. Now, one question I think people will have um, and if you can just explain, will they be able to see where the sites are located on the website so they'll know if they're close? Because I know sometimes people will say, you know, that's not disclosed to them and they, they go through this whole process and then they find out, um, well, it's really, it, it isn't going to work for us. It's too far away or, or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, let me show you the website. It's gaintrial.com and pretty simple website. And right here near the top is find a study site in a bright color. And if you click on that, it will take you to a map showing all the clinical trial sites. And then you can click on the one that's nearest to you. Here we go. Here's a map. Can you see the map? Then if you are in uh, Dayton, Ohio, you can click on this and it will show you. And there's a phone number right there you can call to enroll in the study or to ask if you um, might be eligible or if your loved one is eligible. That is slick. So that's really nice and easy for people to, uh, to be able to get a hold of and, and check that out very simply. And obviously you can go to different, for your listeners who are in other countries, as I said, there are several other countries where we're running the trial. You click on this and it will show you maps of these other countries. You asked earlier about what you need to participate and this has some of the basic information uh, that we talked about, 55 to 80, mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, caregiver or family member who will attend study visits, report on daily activities and oversee taking medication. And again, I may, I may be eligible. Again, here's another link to find the site near you, information for physicians, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, that is nice and very easy to maneuver. So that'll be much appreciated. 
um, by all regarding that. Um, I did have one question, and you you answered it, but I want to go a little bit deeper in terms of final results. Um, so you know, you'll do a press release, but will will the patients themselves um, be sent like a group email or something to notify them, or do they need to watch for the press release? Because they, I know that most of them would really appreciate a handout in terms of here it is, you're going to get it when everyone else does. But um, I think it's a matter of feeling valued in that process. So one of the, one of the challenges is in, in general in clinical research like this, there's kind of a firewall between people who work for the company and the patients themselves mm-hmm. so that we don't bias them or anything like that. Um, so the, the, the key intermediary is the, the site principal investigator, the physician at the site, the principal investigator, the study coordinators. Um, and when you're a subject involved in a clinical trial, as I said, they'll come back for 10 or 12 visits at least, more if they go into the extension, um, and they get to know, just like you get to know your, your primary care doctor, they get to know the, the investigator and the, and the other people at the clinical trial site. So be, there's a couple of ways patients can find out their results. One is um, they, they should keep an eye out for the press release and things like that. Assuming it's successful, it may get a lot of press. Another way then is to contact the study site. So if they were working with, you know, Dr. Smith at the site in Atlanta, they can, they can call back to that study site and when they get the results. And when the sites get the um, unblinding information, the information that, you know, this patient was on placebo, this patient was on 40 milligrams, this patient was on 80 milligrams, um, those sites should reach out to the patients and they, have, they, they will have the patient's email and, and phone number to, to contact them and let them know. So there, there are a number of different ways that patients can find out about their, their, their own results and the overall trial results, but their key contact is the clinical trial site that they worked with and went to. Okay, that makes total sense. Um, another question that I hear from people regarding trials is um, when they are involved in them, and a lot of times they'll see maybe some publicity or something afterwards, um, they, uh, many of them would love to be involved in terms of just being a voice to get others to, to join a trial and the benefits of a trial. And so I'll just throw that out there. Um, maybe that's something you guys already do. Um, but, I, but again, I've heard that from others, and, and I know that there's only so many people that you can contact to if you do wish to do that. Um, but I think, um, and maybe it's just the position that I'm in, so many people with dementia that I talk to um, really want to stand up and be heard. They want to help the process forward. And so if there's any way that they can do that, I guess I would encourage your company not to be shy. If legally you can do that, I know there's all kinds of, you know, um, boundaries and stuff with those things, but um, they do want to help and they do want to get more people involved um, in the studies. And if their voice can help raise that um, issue and, um, you know, progress that along you know, they'd love to be heard. That's a, you know, that's a great point, And I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I guess I have a few ideas about how they could help. They can certainly go to gaintrial.com. They can, um, you know, if they have neighbors, friends, loved ones, family, um, whether they live next door or live with them or live across the country, 
they can direct them to this website. I know that you are very well aware of the Alzheimer's Association, which is a great um, patient advocacy group for Alzheimer's. They have walks in many cities across the U.S. Um, every year, and companies like ours and others provide information on our clinical trials there. Um, the Alzheimer's Association has also lists clinical trials on their website. There is the government website, clinicaltrials.gov, which also lists all clinical trials that are, that are uh, disclosed on there. And lastly, our main website, which is simply cortexime.com, C-O-R-T-E-X-Y-M-E.com, uh, has more information on our science, uh, science tab, press releases for news, et cetera, and a, a contact link. So you can email us if you want more information about this trial or about Cortexime. Um, so several different ways people could find links to our trial, to other trials, um, to support for Alzheimer's. I guess my comment was um, not only in getting people involved, but even afterwards supporting the process because a lot of people are nervous about the process and what it takes and what to expect. And, um, you know, they say that they feel like if you have a voice who's been through the process, they feel it might resonate more so than, um, than a professional saying, this is what it's going to be like when you've got somebody. So from that angle, well, this is just a really, um, very exciting and, um, I can't wait to, to push this out to our community and, um, and to connect, uh, well, actually to, to several other communities from dementia-friendly communities to memory cafes to various Facebook pages and things. And they're looking for hope. You know, they're looking for trials to participate in. And so much of the news hasn't been all that positive about trials lately. And so this is, this is kind of nice that it's taking a, a different approach from, from some that um, have been out there for a while, kind of going down the same, same path. And I, and I love, you've got 90, you know, different trial sites for people to be able to participate in. One thing I didn't ask, um, and I didn't see on the site, but, and I don't know if it shows it, but you had mentioned some trial sites are connected to uh, like a dentistry clinic as well. Does it show which ones have that connection? Because that might sway people in terms of what, what site they want to go to as well, if that's an added value. Um, I, I think you'll, I don't think it shows it. I think you'll just have to call the sites. There aren't a lot of locations um, where um, you, you, you might have two or three different sites in driving distance. There are, there, there are a couple in my, there are a few in Southern Florida and Southern California, but most, I picked that one site in Dayton, Ohio. Um, Ohio, we have two sites. There's one in Cleveland and one in Dayton. Um, there are none in Indiana where I live. There's one in Chicago, the Chicago area. So Usually you don't have a lot of choice about different sites, but you can pick the closest one and call them. And if there are two or three, you can call them all. Okay, wonderful. So the easiest way for people to check this out is just to go to gaintrial.com. That's G-A-I-N and then trial, T-R-I-A-L.com to be able to get that information. And again, we saw the site, it's really simple to maneuver, which is fantastic. You can find a site and go ahead and uh, contact them and apply and you know get up and running. Now, is there a date that this is um, 
starting or have you already started taking applications for the trial? It started last year um, and is well underway. So almost all, every one of those trials are uh, trial sites are up and running and accepting patients to screen them. So now is the time. Now is the time. Yeah, you got nothing else to do with COVID. You might as well be checking this out. That's for sure. Um, and like I said, people are looking for hope and, you know, they want to connect. So I will really urge, you know, my audience to please share share this video, share this information. That's how stuff gets out. We have to make this user-friendly. We have to make it not complicated. We have to um, have it come from a friendly hand to uh, somebody who you feel is a resource and a competent. Um, that really helps people enter these trials and makes them much more comfortable and competent in terms of moving forward. So I want to thank you so much for, for spending time with us on this. Is there anything else that we didn't cover uh, that we should, Michael? You said that, as you mentioned, unfortunately, the Alzheimer's field has um, not had a new uh, approved drug for Alzheimer's in, in quite a number of years. There have been a number of great ideas that have come up and great hypotheses that, that have not so far panned out to have new drugs. We are, we are hopeful, as you say, that this is a very different approach. And I can show you one more slide on that. We know if you look over to the right side of this slide, um, that there's amyloid beta, A beta, which makes up plaques. And there's, there's um, tau, pro, tau molecules that get fragmented and then form tangles. Um, and, but we also know that there's a lot of um, immune reactivity. So there's neuroinflammation, there's activation of microglia, which are the immune cells in the brain, and, and, and many other um, findings that strongly suggest that there's uh, an immune reaction, which suggests that there might be an infection. Um, and so, and, and it turns out that most of these risk factors uh, for Alzheimer's disease are uh, of the genetic risk factors, the last 25 that have been identified. 22 out of those 25 are risk factors that affect the immune system. Uh, so uh, we think that all of this and, and, and more supports the fact that this P, porphyromonas gingivalis or P. gingivalis or just PG infection is really upstream and, um, and, and may be causing um, brain, you know, brain infiltration and secretion of these gingipane proteases that chop up things inside the cells. And, and then you might be, um, they chop up tau and um, they chop up APOE. We, we have demonstrated that. So we, we, are, we, are, we are hopeful that this different approach and this upstream approach might really uh, address many different aspects of it. Again, to slow the disease down significantly or even stop the progression of the disease. Um, so that uh, another question we get a lot is, um, well, gee, um, wouldn't, wouldn't this drug be good as a preventative treatment in the long run? And the answer to that is yes. We think the best, the best pace, place to test its effectiveness is in mild to moderate Alzheimer's, where we'll see, likely see a bigger difference. Um, but we would hope, if it were efficacious and safe, to um, study it in earlier phase disease in the future and potentially use it as a, as a, as a preventative uh, treatment for Alzheimer's. And then we're working on many other um, molecules too, um, which might be used to treat periodontal disease, which is a 
a very significant disease in and of itself. Um, about 85 million Americans have periodontal disease and, and, and some other things that P. gingivalis infection can cause. Um, so that's a little bit more on the, the science and hypothesis side. Um, but I think as a field and as, you know, one researcher in, in Alzheimer's and one doctor who treats patients, um, we, we all want to see um, uh, everything tried that, that might work and, um, and to leave no stone unturned because this is a, this is a pretty devastating disease and we, we all want to see um, one or many um, uh, good treatments uh, come to market to help patients. Yeah, we definitely deserve that. It's been uh, a long, a long road. And, you know, the statistic is, um, you know, every three seconds, somebody in the world is developing this disease. And people are shocked when they hear that. But that's, that's where we're at, folks. And so we need, in order to come up with with treatments and drugs, we need people to enter these trials. That's the only way they're going to come to market. And so we need your help. We need your voice. And um, we need your commitment uh, to be part of this. So I hope you'll, you'll join us in pushing this forward. And, you know, hopefully this one's a winner. We're, we're due. <laughs> we're overdue to have something new enter the market and, and help us all in terms of dealing with dementia. So again, um, Michael, thank you so much for your, your time today with us. It's, uh, it's been greatly, greatly appreciated and, um, and fascinating, uh, the work that you're doing. And so can't wait to see what comes of this. And would love to have you back on the show when the trial is, is over. And even after you do the extension, you know, of the year after where people can continue, um, we'd love to hear your updates and and find out what's going on and in any way that we can help support you with that. So again, folks, go to gaintrial.com. That's G-A-I-N trial, T-R-I-A-L.com for further information. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lori, and thank you for all the great work you do for the Alzheimer's field. As you said, um, uh, people who uh, donate their time and, and, and are involved in clinical trials are crucial to finding a treatment, finding a cure, and, and, uh, and the field is due. We want to find um, one or many, and, uh, and you're um, also uh, a big part of that. So thank you for all the great work you do. Well, thank you. I appreciate, uh, again, having you on and sharing this, this critical information for people. So again, I want to thank you all for uh, listening, and I hope, again, that you will like, click, and share, and help spread the word of the GAIN trial. Uh, working together, building community, and participation, you know, that's the key to, to changing the world and to, to fighting this battle against, against Alzheimer's disease. And come be a warrior with us. We would love to have you join us. And let's see what happens with this trial. It sounds like a, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. In closing, I do want to mention Coral Health. Um, they are actually offering up a couple of their apps, Music First and Coral Faith, for free during this time of COVID. So it's a wonderful time to get these free apps that can really 
bring such calm and joy to people. So just go to Coral Health, C-O-R-O Health, and uh, go ahead and download those apps. And again, you can always go to alzheimerspeaks.com. If you'd like to reach out to me or look at any of our projects or initiatives, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe you can be our next guest on our next show. Take care and be safe, everyone. Bye now. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the way showers who will help your journey a lot easier.